electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. This is a first step in figuring out what the new... On day 115 of the coronavirus crisis and breaking news tonight, the president saying he disagrees with Georgia's decision to open some of its businesses this Friday. This is a first step in figuring out what the new normal looks like. Some American states get ready to reopen their economies and test the waters. Is it safe? This is going to keep going. We don't see an end to this. Or are we setting ourselves up for disaster? Plus... Rick Wright's a friend. I worked very effectively with him, and I was sorry to see him leave. What led to the sudden reassignment of this country's top vaccine specialist? The CNBC Special Report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you with us. Our top story this evening, those comments from the president just moments ago on Georgia reopening its state on Friday. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. But at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, But I disagree with him on what he's doing. But I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon, is just too soon. I think it's too soon. That is the president, the former FDA contributor and uh, CNBC contributor is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He joins us once again tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, you just heard the president. What's your reaction? Well, look, I agree with the president. We talked about this last night. I think that um, these aren't the businesses that you would seek to open first. I would be focused on um, businesses that contribute more to the GDP, frankly, trying to bring up more people to work, factories, shop floors, office buildings. Um, These are businesses where you have, obviously, they're small businesses. There's a lot of people behind those businesses, and I understand the hardship that they're experiencing. But these are businesses also that probably create more risk for consumers. There's more contact directly with the consumers. So they're businesses that you'd probably want to bring back a little bit later in the course of trying to reopen the economy. The other thing to keep in mind is Georgia's not at that point yet. If we look at the guidelines that the federal government put out and we look at what the other states are doing, they're looking to start reopening aspects of their economy after they see steady declines in new cases. Georgia has not experienced that yet. They're just starting to reach their peak, and they're not testing a lot. And the rate of positivity, the rate of positive tests they get back when they do test in the community is very high relative to other states. Dr. Gottlieb, should any non-essential businesses open in the state of Georgia either on Friday or on Monday when restaurants 
are scheduled to open. Right, and bowling alleys and movie theaters as well. So these are all activities that are done primarily indoors. They're largely entertainment uh, for entertainment purposes, things like movie theaters and restaurants. And so those are the kinds of things you'd want to open later as you're starting to reopen the economy. And when you look at what the other governors and states do, that's in fact what I believe other governors are going to be doing. Um, Georgia has not hit the uh, point at which they should be reopening any aspect of their economy if they're going to be going by the guidelines that are being set up by the federal government and that have been put out by other groups, including the guidelines that we worked on at the American Enterprise Institute, laying out sort of a phased reintroduction of activity. Georgia would probably be at that stage if they were following what the other states were doing and what the federal government prescribed. They'd probably be at that point to, to look to reopen aspects of their economy um, probably in the first week of May. Dr. Gottlieb, I want you to stay with me. We'll come back to you in just a moment as Georgia looks to reopen restaurants as soon as Monday. As we just said, let's bring in now acclaimed chef and the owner of several restaurants in Georgia. Hugh Atchison is joining us now. He is not on board with Governor Kemp's decision. Hugh, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You tweeted yesterday evening, quote, to anyone who wants to hear it, I am the leader of my restaurants. I will say when we reopen I will it will be when I feel it is safe for those I employ, my family, my customers. No one tells me when to open, period, and not on Monday. What motivated you to tweet that? I saw the writing on the wall that there was a lot of pressure come from the localized state and local and state government to get a functioning economy again. And we're totally into that idea. But we have not laid the groundwork for a safe reopening system right now. Um, our restaurants have been cooking food for in-need populaces and medical communities, but we're just not ready to accept the general population right now. Georgia is tested at a really extremely low level overall, and that uh, is very worrisome to us. So when you hear the president say what he did this evening, that he disagrees strongly, do you think the governor will change his mind? Um, I think they maybe need to talk to each other um, a little bit more. I don't know. Um, you know, it's the strangest mix of businesses that they're reopening. It's tattoo parlors. It's uh, waxing salons, hair salons. And these are all on Friday, bowling alleys. And then on Monday, restaurants can reopen. Um, and obviously, it's not a mandatory push. We're independent businesses. We're privately held. But it's, it's a push where people want us to do that in some ways, and it's just not a, a safe time. Chef, how are you thinking about when you could reopen? I mean, we're thinking, we're, we're thinking about three weeks away if, if everything goes the way we hope it will go. But I need to create a really big manifesto on how we're proving to ourselves, how we're proving to our employees, how we're proving to the population that wants to come dine with us why we are safe and why they should feel at home and, and treat our place as a place of respite, which restaurants should be. Mentioned you had several restaurants in the state of Georgia. You employ 140 people. What is the status right now with your workers? Well, um, two of the restaurants I own outright, and those ones successfully got PPP. We're very lucky. So we've retained everybody back onto payroll. So it's our concern now. We've got the eight-week clock ticking. And a lot of people, 80% of them are still working at home, while 20% of them produces food for World Central Kitchen, and we deliver to in-need populations and medical facilities. That's what uh, Chef Jose Andres is, is doing. We're, we're aware of that, and we've spoken uh, with a number of chefs uh, here in the New York area who are, who are helping 
uh, there as well. So you got PPP money for a couple of the restaurants. Are you still trying to get more money for some of your other uh, properties? Not at this time. The other property is a management deal, which we have with a, a beautiful new hotel in downtown Atlanta, and they're responsible for doing their own PPP application, and that's pending. Did you pay rent in April, and could you pay it on May 1st? How's that working? Uh, we can definitely pay rent now. Uh, we're, we've got a good amount of cash set aside. I actually sold a lot of caterings for the next two years in advance, and found a lot of very kind people who bought them and it gave us some flexibility and cash flow to uh, deal with them, some things like that. So we can come to arrears and fix that. We've negotiated with landlords for uh, a kind of a mitigated or lessened rent situation for the next few months. And then we'll come to terms with them a little bit later. You thinking now about what your restaurant will look like or what your many restaurants will look like when you're able to reopen? different size, the number of people you'll be able to put in there, and how that will affect your business overall? It'll be the same size, but it'll have a lot less tables. Um, you know, I think we're probably going to have to go on a 50% seating profile. My restaurants, we're lucky because we have a good amount of space to branch out to. They're relatively large footprint restaurants with a lot of outdoor space. So I think that'll be an appeal factor. As my industry as a whole, um, we're really worried that the public is, is going to be reticent to come back, uh, that we're not going to be able to give our, give our best efforts and do the job that we, uh, we fell in love with. Hugh, we wish you well. Thank you for spending time with us. That's Hugh Atchison. He is down in the state of Georgia tonight thinking about how that state plans to reopen. It's good to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Let's go back to Thanks, Dr. Mark. Gottlieb now. So, Dr. Gottlieb, you've been listening to this interview with our chef here down in Georgia. It's a delicate balance. The people want to get back to work, but we have to do it as safely as possible. How should we be thinking about this as both business owners and then patrons who will hopefully go out and, and support these restaurants and other businesses once it's safe to do so? Well, I think a lot of people are going to be looking to stay local. I think what you're going to see is local restaurants within local communities probably doing things to reassure the local community that they're um, providing good oversight of their establishments. You could even see restaurants banding together and other small businesses coming together in a local community and putting a testing machine in a local urgy center and saying, well, we test our waiters every, every Thursday night. I think those kinds of things aren't going to be that unusual. The other thing that state governments and local governments could be thinking about right now is trying to relax ordinances that allow more activity to be moved outside. There's a lot of data now that says that uh, the spread of this virus is less efficient outdoors. There was a study out of China recently that looked at clusters of illness um, and traced back where the index case was. And in every single case, the index case that infected other people occurred indoors, not outdoors, when we're talking about large groups of people that became infected. And so there is some belief that if you move certain activities outside, it's lower risk, not no risk, but lower risk. And so Local communities can relax ordinances, allow restaurants to move tables outside on sidewalks and in, in parking lots, other places, so that more of this activity can take place outside. Dr. Gottlieb, there's another development in a story we first spoke about last evening, and that is comments made by the CDC director to The Washington Post yesterday to refresh our viewers' memory. It's when he said there's a possibility the assault of the virus on our nation next winter will actually be more difficult than the one we just went through. The president tonight at the news event said that he said that the CDC's uh, leader was totally misquoted. Then uh, Mr. Redfield clarified, let's listen and we'll react to it on the other side. Here's the CDC director this evening. 
When I commented yesterday that there was a possibility of the fall winter, uh, uh, next fall and winter it could be more diffi difficult, more complicated. When we had two respiratory illnesses circulating at the same time, influenza and the coronavirus 19. But I think it's really important to emphasize what I didn't say. I didn't say that this was going to be worse. I said it was going to be more complicated or more difficult and potentially complicated because we'll have flu and coronavirus circulating at the same time. We are building that public health capacity now to make sure that we stay in the containment mode uh, for the upcoming fall and winter uh, season. So we will not need to resort to the kind of mitigation that we had to this spring. That was the CDC director. Dr. Gottlieb, the president says flare-ups next uh, autumn would be little, in his words. You told me last night you agreed with what the CDC director was saying, that next fall could be difficult because of the flu and coronavirus coming back. Well, that's right. It's certainly going to be more complicated having coronavirus circulate with the background of flu. Um, well, we know flu is going to become epidemic starting in the fall into the winter, so it's going to complicate our ability to diagnose coronavirus when, it, when um, signs and symptoms of coronavirus are going to be easily confused with flu. Um, this does have the potential to become epidemic in the fall and going into the winter, the coronavirus. I think we are going to have a better toolbox heading into the fall. We're going to be more vigilant. We're going to be screening and testing for it. We might have more, more than one therapeutic able to help mitigate the risk of the infection. But this is an infection that's going to want to come back. It's probably going to become epidemic in parts of the southern hemisphere. So that's going to create a pool of risk for where it can come back from. And this spreads very easily, spreads certainly as easily as the flu, probably more easily than the flu. So heading into the fall when colleges are back in session, schools are back in session, people are going back to work more, maybe they're laying the guard down a little bit, there's a real risk that we can have large outbreaks in this country. I don't think we'll see an epidemic on the proportion of what we're having now. I think we can prevent that. But we'll certainly see outbreaks in the fall, and some of them could be quite large. Stay with me once more, if you would, Dr. Gottlieb. We do have another breaking event this evening, and that's new information on why this nation's top vaccine doctor was forced out of his job. We first told you about this last night. Stat News' Rick Florco broke that story, and he joins us now with more. It's good to have you here this evening. What more can you tell us tonight? So, like you mentioned yesterday, uh, we broke the news that Dr. Bright was being reassigned um, from the head of BARDA, which is this government department that partners with drug makers developing treatments for infectious diseases, to a lower-level position at the NIH. Today, Dr. Bright put out a statement claiming that he was involuntarily transferred to that position because he, quote, resisted efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by those with political connections. And then he mentioned specifically chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine which are these unproven malaria drugs that President Trump himself has been touting as potential cures for COVID-19. He's saying it was directly because of his opposition to the promotion of hydroxychloroquine? Yes, he is. He's saying that he was pushing for the administration only to tout drugs that were proven by science. And like a lot of other experts, he's raised concerns about the lack of evidence supporting hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Now, we don't have a lot of details as to exactly how Dr. Bright spoke out. What we do know is that he was at least somewhat involved in the decision to add those drugs to the national stockpile, which is the, the stockpile of supplies that the U.S. has on hand for outbreaks like this. The government did accept donations of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Bright was involved in that decision as the head of BARDA. But when that first broke, it was controversial. But we didn't know that Dr. Bright himself had concerns with that. 
And now that seems to be coming to light. What are we learning, if anything? Has there been any reaction from the administration to what Dr. Bright said this evening? There hasn't been uh, a lot of on-the-record reaction from HHS or from the White House. It's certainly making splashes on Capitol Hill. We're already seeing some Democrats calling for an investigation. And I can just say that from my conversation with sources uh, in industry, they know the story is probably a bit more complicated uh, than this statement from Dr. Bright shows. They know that Dr. Bright and his boss, Bob Cadlick, who is the head of uh, the, he's the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS. He has oversight over BARDA. The two of them have had a tumultuous relationship in the past. There have been concerns about the speed by which BARDA has worked in the past. And they say that a lot of those complaints fall on Dr. Bright. Nick, we appreciate it very much. That's Nick Florco joining us from Stat News. We'll come back to Dr. Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, what do you make of this uh, new report? The statement from uh, Dr. Bright, whom you worked with, who you told us last night, uh, that you were friends with. Yeah, look, I'm sorry to see Rick leave. I think he was very effective in the job, and I worked effectively with him when I was at FDA. We worked on the Ebola vaccine together. He helped advance that. We worked on a therapeutic for smallpox that he helped advance through the work he did at Barter. And, you know, he was good in the job, and he was good in the role, and I think he was the right person to have in that role right now, given his expertise, his background in vaccines in particular. And you certainly want continuity in that position. I don't know the reasons for his departure. I know Rick to be someone who speaks his mind, speaks plainly, and speaks truthfully. So I take him at his word in terms of what he says, but I don't know the details around his departure. But you did tell us last night that you do think it sets us back somewhat in our effort to have a vaccine to deal with coronavirus. Look, I think it's gonna t we're going to take a step back in terms of the continuity in a very critical position right now. He's the one in charge of giving out grant money, including money that was put into the CARES Act to help stand up manufacturing, do advanced manufacturing of a vaccine and get commercial scale manufacturing in place before a vaccine ultimately is approved. So we have adequate doses. Um, all of that work, Rick was in charge of. Rick was heading up. And so trying to bring in someone else into the job, albeit they're bringing in his deputy who who's going to bring continuity into the position. He's already been there in that role. But, you know, Rick had stature. Rick had prominence. People on Capitol Hill knew him and trusted him. People in the industry knew how to reach him, had worked with him over a long period of time. So it's suboptimal to see him step out. I would have preferred to see him remain in that job. Uh, I think he was doing a good job. A couple of other items I'd like to discuss with you before I let you go. There was a report today that the first U.S. coronavirus, coronavirus excuse me, deaths occurred much earlier than first thought, two in the Los Angeles area dating back to February 6th, rather than the first death in Washington state. I'm wondering what that tells us about how early the virus was uh, seeing community spread uh, here and how we should think, be thinking about now how many people may have been exposed to the virus. Yeah, it's consistent with what we understood um, in terms of the early cases. We know that some early cases got into the United States in mid-January before the travel restrictions were put in place. These were cases that came from China. And we, we know that for a fact in Seattle, based on the excellent work by Trevor Bedford, sequencing those strains and, and dating their origin. So it's not surprising to see cases that might have come into the California area as well, where you get a lot of travel from China into that into that area, into San Francisco in particular, as well as Los Angeles, that there might have been cases that came in around the same time period. So we'll have to sequence these and, and try to date them and figure out when they came into the country. But we know the West Coast got seeded earlier 
um, from travel from China. The East Coast seems to have been most heavily seeded from uh, Europe and Italy in particular, New York in particular. So the West Coast was seeded earlier from travel from China. And the other thing we know now is that parts of the East Coast were actually seeded from the West Coast. So there was sequence work done on the strains in Connecticut, where I live, um, seven cases. They sequenced the strains to look at the genetic profile of the virus. And they were strains related to outbreaks in Seattle. So Washington State effectively seeded parts of the country, including Connecticut. Lastly tonight, before I let you run, can you just assess where we are nationally? We've gotten some better news out of New York We've spent some time talking about what's happening in Georgia. But nationally, where are we right now, in your mind, in our fight against this pandemic? Well, look, things are showing improvement. We're seeing a decline in hospitalizations. We're seeing a decline in new cases. But we need to remember that um, it's an improvement off of a very difficult circumstance. When you actually look at the total number of new cases and you look at the total number of hospitalizations, they're still quite high. Um, they're still very high. They're higher than they were when we first implemented these measures, these social distancing measures. And so we're not out of the woods yet. Um, we have a long way to go. It's going to be probably three weeks before we see sort of sustained declines and levels come down to um, numbers that look like it's under control or look like we're getting it under control. So we're still, uh, you know, got a ways to go. Now it's moving in the right direction. And, and as long as we continue to do the right things, that trajectory should continue. We appreciate your time. It was a longer than expected bedside visit with us tonight, but we certainly appreciate your time. Dr. Gottlieb, we'll see you again soon. That's Dr. Scott <laughs> Thanks Gottlieb, a lot. the former FDA commissioner and, of course, a CNBC contributor now. Let's take you to the futures after a big day for stocks, a bounce back on Wall Street. Futures would be opening uh, in the red right now. You see across the board, S&P, Dow, NASDAQ are all uh, modestly in the red. That's after the Dow jumped 450 points, bouncing from two days of losses. Dow, S&P, and the Nasdaq all gaining today more than 2%. The Dow helped out by big gains in Intel, McDonald's, and Nike. More big swings in oil today, and that certainly helped the overall tone in the market. Up 19% at one point. Crude was up as much as 40%. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is just getting started. China on the attack. U.S. intelligence officials say they've been taking care of the crisis in the U.S. Find out how you're being targeted when we speak with a just-retired former top-ranking intelligence officer. Plus, we're searching on the Internet of what the needs were and came across the uh, face shields. How NASCAR is pitching in to protect America. Before the break, images from around the nation on day 115 of the coronavirus crisis. podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. It's good to have you back with us. When racing was put on hold, NASCAR's aerodynamics and design team found a new way to put their 3D printers to work. Tonight, how NASCAR is stepping up. Typically at, at R&D, uh, the aerodynamics and design team would be, you know, working on the next-gen car, producing parts, but we've completely switched over to face shields in the interim. Coincidentally, we had just gotten um, two new 3D printers installed. We kind of were searching on the internet of what the needs were and came across the uh, face shields. And so we were able to produce a couple prototypes, um, get connected with some medical personnel and have them look at them, made some changes based off their feedback and then pretty much just started around the clock production. And then we got people that from about five in the morning until a little past midnight are staying to babysit the machine. We have a laundry list of orders all across the country. We're making about 40 to 50 of these a day. We're hoping to get up to, you know, over 100 a day with the help of the teams and partners involved. But it is great to be able to to help out and have the technology and the people that can do all this. Uh, That was NASCAR stepping up tonight. Here are the headlines this evening on the virus at this hour. California will start allowing the scheduling of certain essential surgeries. Harvard says it will not take the nearly $9 million in relief funding allocated to it a day after coming under fire from the White House. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the state has partnered with New Jersey and Connecticut to develop a regional contact tracing program. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg will help with that project. Protesters staging a drive-in rally today in Richmond, Virginia, against lockdown orders. They're calling on Governor Ralph Northam to reopen that state. Most citizens have been asked to stay home until June 10th. CNBC releasing new numbers today on key topics in our States of Play poll in conjunction with change research as we gauge where voters in six swing states currently stand. On the issue of steps required to return to work in public spaces, 70 percent are in favor of temperature checks. Fifty three percent want to continue restricting travel. Sixty one percent are in favor of more regular testing. Forty eight percent want test results shared. Sixty seven percent believe wearing masks should be mandatory. For more of our results, please go to CNBC.com. There is breaking news on Delta Airlines this evening. And for that, as usual, we'll go to Phil LeBeau. Hi, Phil. Hi, Scott. Delta has just announced that it plans to raise an additional $3 billion in capital as it tries to build its liquidity position up. Uh, They'll be doing this in two fashions. One, a $1.5 billion uh, note offering, the other $1.5 billion of the term loan facility. And in this case, when you're looking at these uh, two issues here, uh, what Delta is using in some cases is collateral from its slots, its gates, its routes tied with uh, JFK, LaGuardia, as well as uh, Washington Reagan. So this is a case where they are building up their liquidity position. Look, we talked with Ed Bastian this morning on Squawk on the Street, and he said we'd like to get up to about $10 billion as they try to ride out what's going to be a brutal second quarter. 
And a third and a fourth quarter, that may not be a whole lot better. So, again, Delta raising another $3 billion in capital, building up its liquidity position. Scott? Phil, we appreciate that update. Thanks so much. That's Phil LeBeau. We'll catch up with you in the morning. Since the crisis began, we've been checking in with RBC's top biotech analyst as he charts the virus. CNBC's Meg Terrell back with us with Kenan Mackay once again. Good evening to you both. Meg? Hi, Scott. And Kenan, thanks for being back with us again. You know, you've been helping us for six weeks now kind of place where we are on the curve as we tried to flatten it. Um, and your most recent update, you point out we're on our 10th consecutive day of the U.S. with fewer than 30,000 new cases in what you call a post-peak plateauing trend. We just heard from Dr. Gottlieb earlier that we are not out of this. And in fact, we're in for this for some time now. Tell us what your modeling currently shows. No, I, I got to say, I, I totally uh, agree with Dr. Gottlieb. And uh, I want to say thank you so much for, for having me on again. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the, the U.S. Uh, spread of coronavirus is drastically different than any other country around the world. We're seeing sort of a plateau after peaking really towards the beginning of April here. And that, again, drastically different than what we've seen in European countries, as well as some Asian countries uh, like South Korea that have seen really steady and, and dramatic declines after their peaks. So we've seen sort of a, a plateau in daily new cases, sort of insinuating a steady climb upward in the, in the total cumulative number of cases that are out there. Again, dramatically different than anything else. Well, one thing that I think you've pointed out is that that might be just the fact that the U.S. is such a big and diverse country. So whereas we're seeing one thing in New York, we might be seeing something totally different elsewhere. What are you seeing regionally around the country? Yeah, no, that, that's a terrific point. Uh, something that, that, again, could be happening, a reason that sort of at the national level, day over day cases is staying flat. But, you know, while New York is declining, we've seen uh, things reaccelerate, for instance, in Massachusetts. Also some sort of lumpiness in California that filled in for some of the declines that we've seen in New York. Uh, so I, I think that point is valid. It could be uh, as the U.S. begins to emerge from this, it'll be a little bit of sort of a, a, a smoldering spread of the virus with some hotspots uh, waxing and meanwhile, some hotspots waning. Now, one of the charts we've been showing shows your modeling with sort of a worst case a base case and a best case scenario. Uh, and we've sort of been tracking around the base to the best case scenario so far, it seems like. In your note today, I noticed we seemed more on the base case track, which really sort of looks like nationally, we're going to keep at that plateau in terms of new cases instead of the best case, which would be a steady decline like you described for a country like South Korea. What would we need to do more than we're doing to get to that best case and really see the cases decline faster? Yeah, you know, not completely clear why the U.S. has diverged from some of the trends that we've seen in other countries, why we're not seeing that decline post-peak within sort of the time, the same time frame after the initiation, the inaction of quarantine and, and shelter-in-place uh, uh, protocols. And part of it could be, again, while the U.S. is so huge, while some areas are growing, others are, are declining. Uh, but the reason for that isn't clear. Uh, part of it could just be behavioral. People are, are much more prone to actually really uh, do shelter in place and, and do it very, very uh, thoroughly and uh, seriously if it is in their backyard. We've obviously seen that around New York City, um, but not clear how that's sort of being done, how, uh, how uh, strict that is being followed across the rest of the country. And it may just be that people take it much more seriously when it is impacting sort of their local area. Other, pl plenty of other hypotheses around that, but that one is certainly one that could explain it.
You've also pointed out looking at other countries, um, typically in Europe, they, they wait for a 50 to 60 percent decline in new cases to start to ease their restrictions. And you say we're in the U.S., we're about two to three weeks away from that. So do you expect within three weeks we might be headed there as a country, lifting our restrictions more broadly? You know, again, not clear. The trends in the U.S. are drastically different than what we've seen in Europe. In Europe, after peaking to get to that 50 to 60 percent decline, it's only taken several weeks over there. Uh, and again, those plateaus, uh, that are the plateau that we're seeing here hasn't been seen in those European countries anywhere near the extent that we've seen here. So, uh, you know, totally not clear at, at this point, I have to say, unfortunately. Well, Ken, and we really appreciate you uh, sticking with us for six weeks. We could look forward to continuing the conversation. Uh, Scott, we'll toss it back to you no, with a note that, you know, <laughs> Kenan's modeling shows that the U.S. is peaking at different points, but we don't have those travel restrictions in the U.S. So you have to wonder how much that contributes to concerns about continued spread. Yeah, Meg, we, we appreciate it very much. Kenan, of course, we appreciate your time. As usual, we'll talk to you both again soon. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next tonight, Chinese offensive. Intelligence circles in the U.S. are making very serious and very damning accusations. Are they right? A woman holding the answer joins us next. Plus, a New York nightclub fixture and a victim of the virus on what he's doing to keep his business alive. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Some governors are forcing the states to reopen. Stocks that would benefit from that are the ones that did well today. Stocks perk up after two big days of big losses. But many questions remain about the stability of the market. Also tonight, word from top U.S. intelligence circles. China's been working to worsen the coronavirus crisis in the USA. This special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. We are back, and I'll give you your look at futures right now after that comeback on Wall Street today. Looks like we'd give a little bit back if we opened right now. Volume is light, of course, at this hour. Today, oil prices bouncing back. Stocks did follow that. Stocks rising, in fact, 2% across the board. The Dow added more than 450 points. Technology led the way as it was the best-performing sector, yet again, up nearly 4%. Well, last month, messages warned Americans the government was about to shut down the country. It caused a panic in an already fearful nation. 
Tonight, intelligence officials are pointing a finger at China, saying they did it to cause additional problems in the U.S. Sue Gordon is the former principal deputy director of national intelligence. She is our newest CNBC contributor as well. It's nice to see you, Sue. Welcome. Great to see you, Scott. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, and I hope you are, too. What's your reaction to this story this evening? Well, on the one hand, uh, I don't, uh, on its surface, it's not shocking that our adversaries and competitors would use information in the digital environment to achieve their aims. Uh, I think everyone learned a bit from Russian interference. Um, and so the, the notion of trying to influence through the digital environment, I don't think is a shocking development. What is surprising is how quickly and how sophisticated uh, this uh, attack seems to be, attack is a funny word, this influence seems to be. Um, the trend is increasing. The numbers of players who are learning the lesson um, is quite interesting. And the fact that they took advantage of the COVID pandemic as quickly as they did, it's kind of a perfect storm of how you create chaos and so mistrust. So not surprising in its, if, in its existence, but surprising in its sophistication and speed. Interesting that you use that word. Are you saying that the Chinese are now using tactics that other nations have become known for, like Russia and perhaps some others? So first, attribution is difficult. So if it's China, um, I don't think that it would be surprising that the world picks up um, lessons from what everyone is able to do. China is an incredibly capable nation when it comes to the use of data and information technologies. And everyone is figuring out how to use this medium in order to achieve their aim, whether that aim of criminals is theft, whether the aim is destruction of infrastructure, whether the aim is to influence opinion. I don't think it's surprising. If, if the Chinese were able to do, do this as successfully as they were and as quickly as you, you say it appears that they did, what does that say about our ability to stop it? Um, I, I think it's, a, it's an area that we have underinvested in um, and we have to turn our attention. Listen, trust and truth are the foundation of free and open societies. And on the one hand, I know people say that message shaping has been going on since the dawn of time. But what is interesting is now you have such reach and such volume and such ability to penetrate to individuals that I think it is something that we are going to address, have to address much more aggressively because I don't know how open societies work if you can't trust the information you receive. Officials say they, 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 they don't believe that Chinese operatives actually created the messages themselves, but they helped disseminate them. And I'm wondering what you think that tells us about their true capabilities and their motives. Um, pretty... Um it's a pretty effective way to use a manipulate what had at one point been um, something organic and then manipulate it so it is misused. 
So think about the difference between message shaping, that's what advertising is, and the theft of a message and then manipulation for an entirely different purpose. And when a foreign nation inserts themselves in that process, I think what it's saying is that this is in some ways the new battlefield of um, influence. Sue, it's good having you with us. It's great having you uh, a part of the CNBC family now as well. We'll see you again soon. That's Sue Gordon with us this evening. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next tonight, the crisis strategy of one big name New York nightclub and restaurant owner. By the way, he's had the virus. Before the break, images from around the world on day 115 of the coronavirus crisis. As states plan to reopen, many businesses are now coming up with strategies and new workplace procedures. Joining us now to discuss what lies ahead is Scott Gerber. He is the CEO of the Gerber Group. Scott, it's good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Gerber name is synonymous with nightlife, certainly in New York City and other uh, major cities around the country. How are you dealing with this crisis? I also understand you are recovering yourself from coronavirus. So tell us how you're doing personally. I'm doing pretty well. I mean, my voice is a little, uh, you know, breathy these days, but I feel pretty good. I can work out. I've gotten over it. I mean, for me, I had a fever for about two days. It felt like somebody was sitting on my chest for about 10 days. Um, but I've recovered. My wife was in bed for two weeks. She's fortunately recovered and all three of my kids had symptoms and they've recovered. So, uh, health wise, we're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so what about your business? What happens to your restaurants and your bars? Well, it's a really good question. Um, you know, we, when uh, the governor announced that we had to shut down all of our places, we did that on Monday. Uh, we had to lay off all of our employees, which was close to 400 people. Um, and now, you know, we were able to conserve some cash and we're really just waiting for some guidance and, you know, trying to figure out when we're going to be able to reopen, you know, what the business levels are going to look like. Um, you know, it's really difficult to plan for that because, you just don't know how to staff. You don't know, you know, how many people are going to come back. You don't know if there's going to be, you know, occupancies that are cut in half and if there's going to be six feet of social distancing. So, you know, it's pretty difficult. Did you apply for the PPP? We did apply for the PPP and we did get the PPP. Um, but I think the problem for restaurants is that, you know, if you have a business that is still open and your business is being impacted, but you still have employees, then the PPP is great because it helps you pay for your employees. For us, if we don't have any bars and restaurants that are open. We are not permitted to reopen. So for us, if we took the money and spent it paying our employees for the next eight weeks and paying some rent and utilities, then when it came time for us to reopen, we would have no funds to be able to help the business. 
And we're not expecting the business to snap back to 100% of what our business was. So what we're hoping is that they will change the guidelines, that the government will change the guidelines and allow us to use these funds for when we do reopen. And then we'll be able to keep people employed. At this point, we'd basically be paying our employees for eight weeks, and then they'd be back on unemployment potentially in eight weeks. Talk to so many restaurateurs over the last many weeks about the struggles that they're going through in New York and, and, and elsewhere. What about the bar of the future after on the other side of this? What is a bar going to look like, and how are you regulating how many people come in? Are you thinking about that sort of thing now? Yeah, we are thinking about it. And truthfully, we just don't know. We don't know what the regulations will be. I mean, look, until we understand if there's going to be a vaccine for this or that it's going to be just like getting the flu without people dying, um, it's going to be very difficult. I think people's social habits will change. Listen, we're social animals and people are going to come back to bars. We're confident of that. Um, I know that you had, you know, Dr. Gottlieb on before who was saying something to the effect of that, you know, maybe it's safer to be outside. And fortunately for us, we have a lot of rooftop bars. So, you know, we're hoping that people will come back and support us. Um, but we really don't know. We don't know if we're going to have 200 people, you know, in the Campbell at Grand Central Terminal on their way commuting home. Um, you know, it's really an unknown. We had uh, Hugh Atchison on uh, earlier, acclaimed chef down in Georgia. He was against the governor's decision to open up some of the businesses that are opening up on, on, on Friday and Monday. How do you think about the sort of the balance of wanting to get back to work, wanting to give your employees a place to come back to, but also having to err extremely on the side of caution. It's a very, very difficult balance. And, you know, we have a property in Atlanta as well, and we were not opening um, come Monday or whenever the governor said we could. Our, our staff is, uh, you know, the most important thing to us, and their safety is what's most important. And they're not comfortable going back to work yet. So, um, but it's a very delicate balance. I mean, a lot of our properties are in hotels. The hotels will be reopening, you know, hopefully come June or July. Um, and we need to be there to, you know, help support the hotels. And, and I think people are really wanting to get back to work. And at some point, um, we have to start the economy, but we have to be safe about it. And we have to be smart about it. And we have to trust, you know, the scientists and the doctors that are telling us the way to do this. Um, because we don't want to have it bounce back and we don't want it to come back and all of a sudden have it worse than it is today. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible virus and we've all known people that have passed away from this thing and it's, you know, it's, it's not worth the risk. Yeah. We're thinking about your industry tonight. We wish you well, Scott. Thanks for the time tonight. Thank you very much. All right. That's Scott Gerber joining us this evening. Tonight's headlines and we'll get you ahead of tomorrow's trading. We'll do it next. Welcome back on day 115 of the coronavirus pandemic. Here are the latest headlines for you tonight. The United Nations Aviation Agency says international air traffic could drop by as much as 1.2 billion travelers by September. San Francisco expanding testing capacity to all essential workers and uninsured residents. Stocks rising 2% with the Dow climbing today more than 450 points. Nice bounce back after a couple days of selling. There's your first look at futures now. We'd give a little bit back. It is early. And of course, volume is light at this hour. Go to CNBC.com for up to the minute information on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll, of course, see you at noon on the halftime report. Then I'll catch you at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening once again for markets in turmoil from all of us here at CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay well 
and stay tuned for Shark Tank, which is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 